Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You gotta keep them separated. As a society, the actual cost of handling these materials isn't calculated in its entirety. In the U.S. in particular, we have an artificially low cost of landfills as compared to other parts of the world where they don't have landfills. And so the populations are forced to deal with the materials that they consume and produce and throw out in very responsible ways. But here, when it ends up being a very low bar and very easy for the landfill to be cheaper, there are less of those market incentives in place, and that's been a huge challenge. You're reading it everywhere these days, in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, in the Atlantic. Recycling is broken. China, for one, doesn't want our bales anymore. U.S. municipalities are overrun with recyclables, more of which is getting burned or landfilled. So how did we get here? And how do we dig ourselves back out? Stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining me from NPR in Manhattan is Kate Daly, Executive Director of the Center for the Circular Economy at Closed Loop Partners. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And here in studio with me is James McGough, co-founder and co-CEO of Temper Pack, a fast-growing sustainable packaging company that just closed its second round of venture funding. In addition, uh, I just learned that Closed Loop is an investor in Temper Pack. It's a small world in sustainable estan, isn't it? It definitely is. How are you, sir? I'm doing amazing. Thanks for having me on. Let me do the indulgent thing, Kate and James, and just dive right into a soliloquy. As I was parked and about to enter this this studio on a gorgeous spring day, I noticed a plastic bag stuck atop a, a cherry blossom tree. And I swear that plastic bag has been there for four winters and four springs. And it reminds me of when I would take the train into Manhattan back in the day when I lived there in the same jetsam and flotsam and plastic that was there. And at some point, people just become inured to the fact that plastic is a part of the environment. We messed it up. That ship has sailed. There's nothing we can do about it this at this point. And I think about this at night. I mean, I take my kids to the beach over the summer in Florida, and I see particles of plastic in the water, all the stuff in the sand. And I can distinctly remember at their age that I did not see those things in the sand. We had sea glass right? Um, You'd step on jellyfish and other things. Kate, has this ship sailed? Is it just a matter of of mitigating a a disaster that's already disastrous? I think that we we do have a plastics crisis, but I I think that there's a lot of reason for hope. Um, And part of the role that we play at Closed Loop Partners is to invest in amazing innovative companies that give us a lot of reason for hope. Certainly, we have to go beyond recycling. Recycling is a a critical part of the equation, but we need to start to rethink the way we consume generally. And it's not just about not having things. It's really looking at innovative new ways of consumption where people can still have the things that they're used to, but maybe it's through a resale model, or maybe it's through a subscription model. And so I think there's a lot of hope in seeing how people are drawn to collaborative consumption models, and there's economic opportunity there. Well, let's first get the bad news out of the way, and I don't know if you can get it out of the way. You're talking about decades and decades and $8.3 
billion metric tons, I think, talking about the, the history, the modern history of, of all the plastic that we've dealt with in the 20th century since about 1950, the overwhelming majority of which has not been recycled. At best, it's landfilled. Some of it in, in, in Asia and in Scandinavia and in Singapore is incinerated. I know that maybe 10% to 12% of plastic production entails petroleum. So there are hydrocarbons that are dormant. And is there anything we can do with all the plastic that's out there in the oceans, in the rivers, uh, in terms of using it as a feedstock for something? There are plenty of organizations that are looking at that. And, and I'm sure many of us have seen products on the market, like sneakers made out of recycled ocean plastic. And I think there's a lot of those efforts underway. What we always want to think about is what is the total cost in terms of carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions of using those materials, and how does that compare to other sources? I think what we've seen in what we're seeing in our environment now with this glut of plastics that are in the wrong place are the unintended consequences of us relying on a leaky linear system. And when we start to fix that system, we want to make sure that we don't have other unintended consequences of, of going in new directions. So, James, uh, Kate talks about leaky linear and unintended consequences. I'm reminded of Econ 101 where they would use the euphemism of externalities mm -hmm. in this case. I yeah. mean, plastics and stuff, that's a cost borne by society. But you do get the benefit of medical equipment and disposables and single-use plastics and whatnot. When I think back, how did how did policymakers and municipalities completely miss the fact that this stuff is built to last. It doesn't biodegrade easily. Um, it, it can't be repurposed very easily. If you look at the, the continuum of number one through number seven polymers, it's not very easily recyclable. I, I hear oftentimes the best case scenario is if you do separate your recyclables accordingly, maybe we can make a park bench out of your number two plastics, or maybe your number five things can be redone into a toothbrush. Ultimately, it still gets landfilled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's interesting to think about in terms of product design and, and, and companies coming out with new products is what their incentives are. Because businesses always will make something perfect for the incentives they have in front of them. And one of those is, is not sustainability right now. There's, there's definitely starting to be the incentive of the appearance of sustainability. But I think that because it's so complex to quantify what's actually going on, it's hard for companies to say, okay, if we use X materials in 50 years from now, here's the benefit of that. And then because of that, we can sell it for a higher price and there's this marketability to it. Um, that level of, of thinking just hasn't really been there. So I, I know that you wrote a pretty uh, passionate response to a feature story that The Atlantic had in March of 2019. Is this the end of recycling? Americans are consuming more and more stuff now that other countries won't take our papers and plastics. They're ending up in the trash. Uh, the byline was Alana Samuels. And specifically, this talks about almost the Gladwellian tipping point, if I can quote from the story. For decades, we were sending the bulk of our recycling to China, tons and tons of it, sent over on ships to be made into goods such as shoes and bags and new plastic products. But last year, the country restricted imports of certain recyclables, including mixed paper, magazines, office paper, junk mail, and most plastics. Waste management companies across the country are telling towns, cities, and counties that there is no longer a market for their recycling. These municipalities have two choices, pay much higher rates to get rid of recycling or throw it all away. 
This is one of those tipping point moments that's caused the reckoning. We've seen so many stories in the Wall Street Journal and Quartz in the New York Times about uh, the, the glut in recycling. Now that the, the it's, it's kind of been gummed up and China is unwilling to take our single stream recycling back in these empty containers, that it's causing its uncomfortable reckoning across the board. Municipalities are loath clearly to tell parents and kids that, no, just throw it all away. We're not recycling anymore because that's taboo. But there is no end market for it. So it's it's definitionally just really efficient. And there's a lot of make-believe involved. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. that When I first read that article, um, that, that first paragraph, my thought was, well, so what? You know, They're not taking our recycling. Someone tell me why this is bad. Um, and, you know, because you come down to it and you think, okay, we're sending it all over there, but maybe this is bad product to begin with. Maybe they don't have a use for it. Maybe they're making it into a new product and then we're having to ship that all back here. So is it actually more sustainable to do what we're doing currently? So if, if now that we've stopped this, let's actually look at the facts behind is this good or bad? Okay, what was happening to all the plastic we were sending there? There was such a voracious demand for it to the point that um, I don't know what the tipping point was, but maybe 10 years or so, we stopped separating our recyclables, and most providers just said, we'll give you one bin, put it in, it's single stream, we'll deal with the separation at the facility. Yeah, I mean, I think there still is a huge demand for plastics and recyclable materials. They're, they're, those That's a market commodity that there is a demand for. And the issue that National Sword, China's ban, put into a spotlight is the issue of contamination in our recycling bales. And part of that contamination was coming about through single-stream recycling, where the processing facilities weren't really equipped to separate out all of the material flows. But there are plenty of U.S. recycling processors who have been using advanced technology to produce really high-quality bales, and they're weathering this disruption in the U.S. and are still generating revenue and are profitable. And so I think we want to separate out these different issues, that the the recyclables as a commodity have a market value, but we needed to pay more attention to the contamination issues. And this has now created a moment where we in the U.S. are forced to address these issues. A lot of municipalities that did go to single stream are going back to dual or, or triple stream. And it's because there needs to be more reliance on people to do the sorting. In other countries around the world, there are up to a dozen categories of recycling, and people from a very early age as children learn how to separate their recyclables into these different categories, into different bins. And in the U.S., we tried to oversimplify that, and it backfired. Okay, but hold on. There was a market for recyclables. Let's suppose that, in theory, we're still separating everything, everything from number one plastics, number two plastics, number five plastics, which you used to have to take to a separate bin at a Whole Foods or a different market elsewhere. I think the mass perception was that these things get recycled back into what I was using in the first place. So if it was a bottle of Dasani or Aquafina, but oftentimes if you follow the continuum, you get these wishy-washy answers like, oh, these bottles will be recycled into um, filling for uh, fleece jackets or, you know, or, or thick winter coats, or we're going to make plastic park benches for national parks. Again, these are ultimately going to get landfilled. It's not closing the loop on anything. It's it's kind of a, a Potemkin recycling. That's right. There's upcycling and downcycling. And really, our goal in the investments that we make is, in the case of a plastic bottle, bottle-to-bottle recycling. And we see that there are many, many domestic companies, brands like Coke, Pepsi, beverage companies, who have set very ambitious goals for recycled content in their packaging. And they're hungry for post-consumer recycled materials. They want to turn that bottle into a bottle. And so the question is, how do we make sure that the supply chain supports that goal and isn't leaking along the way? 
I want to throw out a couple of stats, and you were involved in, in uh, municipal life in New York City, Kate. You can unpack that for us. But uh, the Atlantic story says that since 2010, Franklin, New Hampshire, the city of Franklin, New Hampshire, has offered curbside recycling and encouraged residents to put paper, metal, and plastic in their green bins. When the program launched, Franklin could break even on recycling by selling it for $6 a ton. Now, the transfer station is charging the town $125 a ton to recycle or $68 a ton to incinerate. Um, some other stats to throw at you. Uh, <laughs> in 2015, the most recent year for which national data are available, America generated 262.4 million tons of waste, up 4.5% from 2010 and up 60% from 1985. That amounts to nearly five pounds per person a day. New York City, your old stomping grounds, collected 934 tons of metal, plastic, and glass a day from residents last year, a 33% increase from 2013. I think what's inherent in all of this, James, is people, that that's the one touch point that kind of assuages your environmental guilt. If you recycle, like that's like I'm doing my part. And it's like set it and forget it, out of sight, out of mind. But what we've learned downstream is that this stuff gets shipped off and Oftentimes, even if your city tells you it's recycling, a lot of the stuff is not recyclable. It gets incinerated or landfilled. And now China has taken the bold move to say, we just don't want it at all. Yeah. Recyclable does not mean will be recycled. That's that's the key difference here. But um, I mean, another way you could look at it, and I know, is this product recyclable is kind of the proxy for am I doing good? You know, is do I support this? Another way you could look at it is, well, what's this product made from and what did it take to create those raw materials? And even if I don't recycle this, um, is this still a responsible product? And about 25% of what ends up in the blue bins, the recycling bins that we all know, is contaminated according to the National Waste and Recycling Association. Now, Kate, I've been to these uh, MRF facilities. I wrote a story for Business Week on single-stream recycling. I don't even remember what MRF stands for. Can you fill me back in? Um, material reclaim Recovery facility. facility. Or... It's, so, it's so fascinating, right, when you put everything in this blue bin or green bin and the truck takes it. And Ron, I think, you know, who you work with, Ron Gonen um, and Recycle Bank back in the day, it goes to a facility where optical scanners and lasers and puffs of things and separating it by weight and gravity. And then you have neatly bailed materials at the end, whether it's newspaper, whether it's uh, number one plastic, pet plastic, detergent bottles, aluminum cans, which were always, there was high value for it. Glass, ideally you want separated by color because the glass purchasers want a pure feedstock. But Kate, I did that story when oil had broken $130, $140 a barrel and it sent uh, all sorts of commodity prices skyrocketing. People were stealing biogrease. People were stealing manhole covers, copper pipes from public parks. And that's been the knock on recycling, that it's so commodity-driven that when oil is cheap, people just go back to the old habits of, look, it costs us far less to um, command the virgin product or make new polymers than, than force us to recycle and do new things with old polymers. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that as a society, the actual cost of handling these materials isn't calculated in its entirety. In the U.S. in particular, we have an artificially low cost of landfills as compared to other parts of the world where they don't have landfills. And so the populations are forced to deal with the materials that they consume and produce and throw out in very responsible ways. But here, when it ends up being a very low bar and very easy for the landfill to be cheaper, there are less of those market incentives in place. And that's been a huge challenge. 
Kate, do you believe that in their heart of hearts, the waste management companies really want to push people to recycle? If their bread and butter are the tipping fees for landfills, they could always pay lip service to, we're creating a sustainable future and methane capture at landfills and we're helping recycling and bonus points and everything. But they're, again, their core business is landfills. And we have still tons of space for landfills. If you look the middle of America and um, you know, New York City sending its trash even to southern states. We work closely with companies who are recycling companies who were committed to zero waste. And so one example is Eureka, which covers all of the, the management of recyclables for the Twin Cities. Um, they have a very low contamination rate because they've invested in technologies. They're also the hauler for the cities. And they don't own a landfill. They're not incentivized to bring things to a landfill. They're incentivized to support the city's zero waste policy. So those are the type of processing facilities and companies that we support, we invest in, and we like to work with. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Kate Daly, Executive Director of the Center for the Circular Economy at Closed Loop Partners. She joins us from NPR New York. And here in studio with me is James McGough, co-founder and co-CEO of Temper Pack, a fast-growing sustainable packaging company here in the RVA. Um, James, I want to quote from your response to this uh, widely circulated Atlantic piece on recycling, you know, the end of recycling. You're saying, and this goes back to my, my, you know, invoking the euphemism of externality and economics, the bizarre economics of supply and demand in this. Your response, and I quote, the waste market should operate just as any other free market where behavior and price are intertwined. As recycling slows down, prices for landfilling will go up. Cities will require a heavier tax for waste disposal to cover their increased costs from the waste management service providers. As this cost becomes front and center, consumers will become more cognizant of the waste they create, and as a result, will put more pressure on companies to build more sustainable products. The final cost is nothing to hide from. It's the innovation driver. Well said, but why hasn't this happened over 50 or 60 years of hyper-consumerism? We've been running out of space. There's always been not in my backyard. This reckoning has always been put off. For me right now, if I take a PET bottle. What does PET stand for? Polyethylene terephthalate, which is what regular water bottles are made from. Mm. If I take that and I throw it away, um, there's no consequence. If I take it and recycle it, there's no reward. Um, if I take a you know HDPE or, or milk carton or something... Um, and I recycle that. There's no reward. If I throw yard waste in the recycling bin, there's no consequence. So right now, there's no um, drivers of correct behavior. Um, and I think that's what makes it hard to really uh, affect this on a massive scale because people are there's kind of a curtain between what goes on, the perception of what's right and wrong, and then what the waste management community has to deal with. What's all this we hear about the globally aspired to recycling program in San Francisco where they forced small bins down people. They religiously separate food compostables and things that go off to be made into hog slop and, uh, you know, anaerobic compostables and digestibles and all these different things and then recycling bins and forced you to have to deal with fundamentally a smaller trash bin. And this is in one of the most forward-thinking cities and greenest cities in the country and people, I, I was told, from Finland have come and visited, you know, Gavin Newsom's old haunt, <laughs> Governor Newsom's old haunt. Um, are, are those the kinds of things that suggest the future we're going to see where municipalities come back and say, we're, we're going to force you to have to figure it out and to throw away less? I think so. Um, and I think if, you know, for that example, for if, if you're constricted to a certain volume of waste, um, you're going to start making purchasing decisions based on how much waste you're going to create. And those purchasing decisions are going to make their way back to the companies that are making packaging decisions. 
um, and they're going to go back to the material su suppliers and say, hey, we need to get this down by 30% on the wall thickness, or we need to use a material that can fold flat and, you know, take up less space here. So I think everything really comes from consumers driving um, companies to make, you know, the hard choices. And I think in this case, um, it could be that consumers just aren't aware of the issue as much as they should be. Aren't we seeing landfill prices spike up? in a way that's going to hurt municipalities, that they, they can't absorb these costs, that they're going to have to send it back and send up hauling and tipping fees? I don't think the average um, consumer knows anything about landfill prices. Um, so that could be the case, but I haven't heard about it, or the average person on the street hasn't heard about it. But with this recycling reckoning, where municipalities are saying, listen, and, and there are many examples, the Times and the Journal have covered it, and we'll post it mm -hmm. to our site, of municipalities just quietly incinerating a lot of it. That that, yeah. that, that is a kind of a best worst case scenario, at least we can recapture some of the hydrocarbons some of the energy, from it. Yep. What do you think about that? You've already gotten the fossil fuels out. You've, you've spent the energy creating them into products. You can't then get another use out of them because you can't sort them correctly, which means there's no end market for it. So what's the best thing you can do? You can either just bury it and hope it stays inert for the rest of time, um, or you can try to get some of that embodied energy back out through um, you know, waste energy reclamation. So I, I think that's a pretty good option. I mean, there were funky things that were happening, I think. It, then in the commodity cycle, they were looking at biofuel to be derived from plastic. If you could get, you know, at par gasoline that the feedstock was used uh, in the laboratory. I remember I profiled a company, Coscada, GM invested in it. It doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, a lot of this reckoning is, is put off when you see oil prices fall the way they did from $140 a barrel to something closer to, you know, a new normal again of $40, $50, $60, $70 dollars a barrel. Yeah, it's definitely, if, if it gets expensive, you see a lot of innovation, a lot of excitement, a lot of thought. And then when it falls back down, it's just so hard to resist, you know, not going back to the old way. Okay, talk to me a little bit more about the China factor in this, because we're told that, you know, as the manufacturer of the world, there's such a voracious demand for feedstocks, not just raw materials, but this is a country that does recycle. It has a tradition, unfortunately, of, of you know, in India as well, as, as rag pickers and, and, and the picking class and people that will always sift through trash if... Uh, cities aren't doing it. I mean, you go to China, you go into the airports, this stuff is is religiously separated, and it's not a country that takes landfill space for granted. Yeah, the informal recycling that goes on in those countries is a really important part of the economy and, and important for those communities. Um, I think that, that China has shifted to want to support its own domestic infrastructure. Uh, it also was looking at the environmental and health consequences of bringing in so much contaminated recyclables, where some of those bales were truly more accurately characterized as garbage and, and not really a high percentage of high-quality recyclables. And so they just reached their tipping point of realizing that they wanted to support their own domestic infrastructure and not import this from other countries. And so they're working to, to build this up internally. They have very strong mandates around the circular economy that are at the national level and these top-down incentives and regulation to try to support a shift from a linear system that can take full advantage of these resources. Um, and in that, they're similar to many European countries and certainly the European Commission, who's put funding and investment and regulation down in order to support that, that transition. In the U.S., we're not seeing that sort of regulation, certainly not at a national level and even not so much at, at the state level. And so that's where the cities have played a really important role because the cities recognize what the challenges are. In New York City, where I live, Every year, the city pays approximately $60 million to cart used clothing that's been thrown out to landfills. And that's a taxpayer cost that's part of this invisible system 
that as as taxpayers, as consumers, as residents, that's hidden from us and we don't know the consequences. I think that some municipalities in the United States have been very successful in implementing pay-to-throw programs where you have to pay for your garbage bag or you pay for a tag to put on your garbage bag. And very quickly, people start to understand the rules better, how to divert things from landfill, because there's a cost that's attached to the amount of garbage that they generate. You know, Kate, I'm dating myself here, but I remember when um, Mike Bloomberg was in his first term as mayor and various, you know, new normal things that now we accept as that's definitely the way of life. There were really exotic, like the ban on indoor smoking, people, bars where restaurants are saying, oh, we're going to die. What, what is this? Like now you can't imagine smoking in a restaurant. And also he came back, if I remember this correctly, and said we need to, especially in the wake of 9-11 and that recession in you know 2001 and 2002, we need to curb you know, pardon the expression, recycling programs in the city. Some of the stuff is just patently not economic. And he got a lot of pushback in Manhattan from people who are like, you're going to have to pry that recycling program from my cold, dead hands. I mean, once it's in place, it's really hard to kind of rest it back culturally. That's right. And th- these markets go up and down. And that's where it's advantageous when companies have long-term contracts with the municipalities that they support in terms of their, their waste and recyclable processing. But th- the commodities are cyclical. And so at that moment in time in New York City, the, the value was down. And he did that cost-benefit analysis that it wasn't worth the taxpayer money to, to cart these things. The, the danger in in the media attention now that talks about you may throw it in the recycling bin, but it's just going to a landfill, is that that's absolutely not the case for many municipalities around the country. And so although it is true that some cities have turned to that, there are plenty of cities that are still able to generate enough revenue to support the recycling programs. And in those cities, citizens need to still be encouraged to separate and and sort and recycle. Kate Daly, is that cost-benefit analysis that, you know, going back to the Mike Bloomberg, Mayor Mike Bloomberg example, fully accounting for the externality part of it, again, that the, the cost that's borne by society and the taxpayer, is that fully looking into it? Like the opportunity cost, I can either recycle it or I can throw it away. And is that fully, um, is it diminishing, is, you know, is the thumb on the scale of making landfills always the cheapest option? When, when landfills are always the cheapest option, then there's much less incentive for the kind of innovation that's needed to help us figure out how do we take these materials and turn them from bottle to bottle or turn them into something that's valuable as opposed to the downcycling so that something's life is just extended by one more product cycle and then it goes to a landfill. And so we're really excited about the kinds of innovation, whether it's chemical recycling that can return hard-to-recycle plastics to their monomer state, or even using enzymes to digest plastics. There's a lot of opportunity for innovation that needs to be happening in parallel as we still continue to use mechanical recycling as one avenue for handling these materials to, to divert them from the landfills. The goal should always be that landfills become obsolete because these are a tremendous volume of resources that we're just putting in the garbage. Some things you would think would be absolutely prohibitive to landfill. In fact, you know the, the, the scavengers in New York were always looking for Aluminum cans, because it's something you could automatically, axiomatically get five cents for. And the value proposition to recyclers was it will always make much more sense to recycle aluminum than kind of go and mine it and create the can versionally. And similarly, I've been told with glass that the return on kind of the the BTUs expended and everything, assuming you could get the pure glass, it makes much more sense to recycle glass. Or the third example is the newspaper industry. You would not have print newspapers without a robust uh, feedstock of of 
you know, recycled newspaper coming in. And I don't understand why those economics are not prevailing uh, in order to kind of force municipal behaviors more. Well, they are prevailing in, in some areas. So, for example, in New York City, our residential paper collection goes to Pratt Industries, which is located in New York, and turns that paper into pizza boxes that are then used to serve all of us pizza. Um, from our takeout pizza restaurants. So that's a great example. And then you're told not to recycle that pizza box because it's greasy. You are able to recycle pizza boxes in New York City. Yes. Go ahead, go ahead. So so there are good examples of closed-loop systems, and in particular where there's co-location of the materials and the second use. That's that's really the ideal scenario. So so there are markets there. Um, and they're just not always captured in the press that's talking about the the ebb and flow of the market cycles. James McGough, I toured Temperpack, uh, your fast-growing sustainable packaging company here in Virginia. I toured a, a one warehouse yesterday and was struck by um, the kind of the form factors of something you're building. Mm-hmm. You you plotted a thing. You plotted something for me and said, "We knew if you and I talked, you know, three four years ago that um, meal delivery units and grocery delivery and food delivery and everything was going to explode. Whether you're talking about Whole Foods now, Amazon now." Kroger, Fresh Direct, what Blue Apron, I, various companies that I don't even, you know, I'm not a millennial, so I'm not as relevant <laughs> as I used to be. And you said if I just wanted to be mercenary and plot parallel to that, I knew that the market for um, styrofoam would explode parallel to that. It's but we, yeah. but your your indication was that we knew that, that that was kind of culturally toxic styrofoam. We had to make a better way because companies mm-hmm. were going to come back and be shamed into using something that was made substantially out of cardboard. Or in your case, you showed me cotton, yeah. um, uh, cornstarch-based I- interior, things that were completely recyclable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, there's two parts to this. One is that... Uh, you have a lot of new companies that they used to have a lot of uh, big budgets for their brand, and they don't have those anymore because no one interacts with their brand except for something that gets dropped off on the doorstep. So that means that their brand lives and dies in this box. And so every part of that box has to be extremely well thought out if they want to maintain that um, customer connection. And when it comes to you know the cardboard and you know, the inside and, and all this stuff, they can make it look really nice. But when it comes to the actual protective packaging as far as thermal goes, they didn't really have a lot of options outside of using a styrofoam cooler because there wasn't a lot of material innovation there. So we noticed that. And then like you overviewed, we were thinking, okay, well, people are getting more medication to the doorstep, more food to the doorstep. Um, that's all becoming much more efficient. So it's just a good time to be in the cold chain world, which is the supply chain behind perishables. Um, which is dominated by styrofoam or EPS foam, uh, which is the actual name for it. Um, so it's a, it's a good space to be in. And when you see the trend of, okay, increasing amount of perishables coming to people's doorsteps plus increasing amount of dissatisfaction with single-use plastics, the only way to make those two trends work is to come up with new materials. And so that's what we set out to do. So, and we did see this parallel to even, you know, as I was booking you, the New York Times ran a story a feature story, The Great American Cardboard Comeback. No one is shocked when a paper mill closes anymore. The shocking thing is when one reopens. You know the new normal now is if you go to any doorman building in Manhattan, it's it's just overwhelmed with Amazon deliveries. Yeah. You know, two-day deliveries, whether you're getting your Zappos thing, Amazon Now, Fresh Market, I'm, I'm sorry, Whole Foods delivers, your other grocery chain is delivering, and so much cardboard is being put out there. And even while China made the decision in January 2018 to stop accepting most used cardboard, we're seeing an explosion in um, 
demand for it domestically. So it's caused a, a bizarre kind of insourcing, inshoring of a, a kind of a renaissance for cardboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cardboard is a, um, a fantastic material. Uh, you know, I think about this stuff a lot. So it, it has strength to it. It has, you know, enough water repellent. You can print on it. You can encapsulate things in it. Um, it's, it's really made a everything we deliver into a unit. So FedEx can handle it. It's easy to carry. Um, it's completely, you know, plant-based. You can recycle it. 93% of cardboard gets recycled correctly. And um, it's just, it's a fascinating material that I think has a, a, a big role to play in the future. So yours, though, it's it's odd because you're, you're tempted to think that there's going to be a squishy styrofoam part of it when you squeeze it, but you're mm -hmm. using kind of, you know, trickier sustainable materials. Like you told me you weren't even using cornstarch from the, the food corn you know, industrial corn uh, mm -hmm. applicability. The cotton interior, the insulation that you had on some of the other packaging had little stems and seeds and thorns in it because it was throwaway cotton from Texas. Right, right. And um, you told me that the one thing that keeps you up at night is that on some of the boxes, there's still a tiny, thin film of plastic that's used because it's mm -hmm. mission critical and you have to guarantee. I saw this testing equipment that you have. If somebody hires you and they deliver perishable products, you have to guarantee that insulation, that non-contamination, and you're just dying to get rid of that final strip of plastic. Yeah, exactly. It, it does keep me up at night. <laughs> so the, um, the most important thing for us is that the product works. Um, no one is going to buy our product simply because it's sustainable. We want it to work as well or better than any styrofoam cooler. The second thing is the consumer has to really enjoy using the product. So it has to look a lot better. And then what we want to do is just embed sustainability as a default into everything we do. So people aren't buying off of, you know, the inclination to, to go green or anything. They're buying this because it's a better product. Um, but we've done our job in making sure that it's sourced from plant-based, bio-based, renewable content. It's made with a low emissions process and that whether you landfill it or recycle it or, you know, compost the inside, there's a, uh, there's a sustainable end-of-life option. You know, Kate, I don't understand composting. Is there an end market truly for good compost materials? I go to an organic store. They dutifully have that bin or you go to a Whole Foods where you could put some paper plates and cups and cornstarch-based cutlery. Is anybody actually dying, uh, you know, in the in the trash bay and the ramp in the back to take this stuff off and 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 process it and sell it to someone? Well, there's a very robust market uh, within the agricultural sector for high quality compost, and so the challenge is that now we've started to equate food packaging with food waste in what we send in that organics waste stream that goes to composting facilities. And there are some composting facilities that are able to accept that mixed material, but more and more we're seeing that composters want to deliver a great product for agriculture. And the bioplastics and other supposedly compostable materials that are put into that stream often degrade at different rates over a, the course of time and are often indistinguishable from the petro-based regular plastic food packaging. And so more and more they're seen as contaminants and have to be screened out at the composting facility. Because you have seen an explosion of those types of cups. I don't know if it was Archer Daniels Midland or another one that's that's behind it. Back at, at Bloomberg, we had these, uh, uh, I don't know, what's up? cornstarch or sugarcane-based cups or something that would melt in heat. But you you wondered about the heat that would have to be used, the energy that would have to be expended to kind of process it. And again, on the end market, assuming that it is processed correctly, you're telling me that farmers are, are waiting to buy this stuff at a certain price and, and mix it into their soil? 
Well, farmers want high-quality compost. That's definitely in, in high demand. So those facilities that have the time frames and the heat level that are able to incorporate the food packaging into it, they do exist. But what I'm seeing more and more and, and hearing from a lot of the state entities who, who oversee some of this is that food packaging is a challenge in composting. And one factor behind that is the the variability in the types of products that have come onto the market in recent years. So when you hold up one of those plastic-looking cups, one big challenge is that often people throw those cups that appear to be a plastic cup into the recycling stream, where they become a contaminant in the plastic recycling stream and, and damage the value of a PET bale. And then if they're put into the composting stream, they're not necessarily going to a facility that can process them. So often they just end up in a landfill anyway. And so that's a big challenge that I think is is something that the advocacy groups, regulators, investors, and both the public and the private sector have to come together to figure out how to solve. Incidentally, James and I, when we met at Temper Pack yesterday, were looking at this uh, Starbucks uh, latte cup, the very basic cup. You know it well. It has the sleeve, the plastic lid, a paper cup. You're not supposed to recycle it. I don't know how many billions of these things get thrown out every month. But I asked him, could you, if Starbucks came to you and said, at the very outset, at least price is not an issue, make us the, the perfect kind of compostable, recyclable, all-paper cup. Could you do it? And there's one aspect that you showed me just to illustrate the difficulty of doing this. Do you realize that even the the cardboard sleeve, the, the hand protector that's put on, is engineered in a way that that thin film of glue heats perfectly with a hot cup of coffee so that it doesn't fall off? There's a huge kind of design and cost conundrum in this. I'm sure all sorts of people are hitting up Starbucks Twitter and saying, one, get rid of plastic straws, get rid of plastic cups. And Starbucks is out there saying, oh, by the year 2023 or 24, we hope to source one third of our materials, whatever it is. I think about it when I look outside my window at night and look up at the moon and imagine the future. If Starbucks were to take the initiative and say, we're going all compostable or all recyclable, or we're going to take all our cups back and close the loop in this, Kate and James, that that would force everybody else to follow. Well, you've really teed me up on this one because we're partnering with Starbucks and McDonald's and, and many other supporting companies to reinvent that paper cup, which, as you noted, is partially a plastic cup. Uh, we launched an innovation challenge last year to identify solutions for a 100% recyclable and 100% compostable cup. We got about 480 responses from 50 different countries. And just a few weeks ago, we announced 12 winners. And some of those winners have come up with a new aqueous-based coating that's, that's not plastic, the traditional fiber cup. Some of the winners are reusable cup systems that people can bring back to the store that are tracked using RFID or other technology. And then some of them are plant-based cups um, that are that are compostable. And they're all in different stages of evolution of their company. Some are early stage companies, some are established cup suppliers that have been working on this within their R&D departments. And so Starbucks and McDonald's and our other partners have invested quite a bit in sourcing the design solution. And we at Closed Loop Partners play an, an important role as the managing partner of that project to make sure that whatever design is is announced aligns with the infrastructure that needs to support that cup as it goes through our system. 
You know, and it's such a sanitary and um, operations challenge. I I went through the Starbucks drive-through before I got to the studio today, and I have my little trusty um, reusable plastic Starbucks cup that gives you a ten cent discount every time, and I put my order in. But he's not allowed to take it from me because of the operations of the drive-through. They have to have the drink ready made. If it's a cold drink, they dump it from a plastic cup and then go dump the cup anyway. And for sanitary reasons, I mean, at best, maybe they could pour some hot water on your thing. So there are a lot of, of, of different things to have to consider. And meanwhile, I'm thinking about you know 2018 being the year that the plastic straw became taboo because there was a video a couple of years ago of a poor sea turtle was having this straw brutally extracted from its nostrils. Yeah, I think if there were sea turtle videos of a lot of different types of plastic, we, we could see a lot of activity. I think that coming out of that video, we saw a tremendous response. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from that story of the sea turtle and the straw of what really resonates with people. And how do we take that incredible amount of energy that's been applied to local bans on straws and shareholder activism demanding that companies stop using straws and the support for innovative solutions, whether they're paper-based or algae-based? How do we tap that and apply that across other types of materials? Because we see the success of shareholder activism in driving some of this. It really needs to come from consumer demand at the same time that we as consumers are all downstream of some very powerful forces, and collective action is really critical. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Kate Daly. She's executive director of the Center for the Circular Economy at Closed Loop Partners. She's joining us from NPR in Manhattan. And here with me in studio is James McGough, co-founder and co-CEO of Temper Pack. It's a fast-growing, sustainable packaging company that just closed its second round of venture funding. Uh, you know, I, I do want to take this to uh, the other areas that are kind of being short shrifted in it. There's so much development in the world. And one of the great things is if you look at the hundreds of millions of people that China has lifted out of poverty, and in that wake, the rest of Asia and all these participating economies in China's boom, and people are using single-use plastics like never before, and hence all of these rivers in Southeast Asia are getting gummed up, and increasingly, you know, somebody did a study, I think it was the author Frankel, that, um, you know, you do an audit of uh, some of the plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and you'll find, uh, a, for example, a, a plastic lighter cigarette lighter from Hong Kong. I mean, we're all super connected. And it's great from a development perspective if you look at agricultural advances and how important plastics have been. If you look at, um, you know, sanitary standards and, and standard of living advances, plastics used in the manufacture of automobiles. But the world was never really given instructions with what to do with them. When you look at ocean plastics, a significant component of what we find in oceans are fishing nets. And then there's also the big challenge of microplastics. And so... Right today, almost 60% of the clothing that you see on the rack is a polyester blend. And when we put those clothes into our washing machine, microplastics are released into the, the water. And right now, there are a lot of different entities that are trying to find technological solutions to capture those microplastics, whether at the wastewater treatment plant, finding out how to retrofit washing machines or new washing machines that can capture them. But again, these are this unintended consequences that have had tremendous problems caused in the in the aftermath of their usage, in particular for our oceans. Um, at at Closed Loop Partners, we incubated a company that targets 
that issue by building infrastructure in Southeast Asia near those rivers to capture those materials before they go into the landfill, are washed into the river, and then sent out to the ocean. Um, and, and that entity, Circulate Capital, um, has raised $100 million from various brand partners in order to build that infrastructure to capture that plastic before it goes into our waterways. James, you know, when I daydream about, like, kind of my business dreams, like if I were to be asked, suddenly the founder of In-N-Out Burger decides to call me into Los Angeles and says, Farzad, we want you to become our new CEO and spearhead a global expansion. We're finally going to expand east of Texas, and you will merge us with Chick-fil-A. You'll get them to be LGBT-friendly and whatnot, and then you'll go to Goldman Sachs and get a mega IPO and cover yourself in all sorts of glory. But barring that, I imagine myself inventing this um, omnibus polymer that's recyclable across the board that comes back you know, you might have a number nine plastic on it that's like the universal plastic. It's like the universal blood donation type thing. I, I wonder why the industry, for all the money that goes into the Plastics Council and the American Chemistry Council, whatnot, has not been able to do that. That's something that you can use across the board, and it's when it's recycled, it can be just used and used and used again across all of these different um, very practical uses. I don't have to come up with park benches in national parks. Yeah, it, it is interesting. If if we could get away from this whole sorting issue if we just used less variations of plastics. Um, the, the issue is that uh, there's obviously different costs for, for each type of plastic, and they all perform differently, and they're all used in different applications. So it's really hard to find that kind of one-size-fits-all uh, magic bullet plastic that works. And, you know, it can be heat-sealed. It's um, It has, you know, low moisture vapor transmission. Um, it's incredibly cheap. You can mold it. It's hard to find things that will fit all of those different needs. Why aren't the manufacturers ultimately responsible for it? Are they so powerful that it's impossible to tell a Coke, a Pepsi, a Unilever, and Kate, feel free to jump in with this, that you're making it, you're stripping the profitability out of it, and you can't just take for granted that society is going to bear the cost of disposal or, or recycling? The European Commission is addressing that very point with their legislation around extended producer responsibility for certain types of single-use plastics. They've decided that the companies that generate the plastic products, the packaging, need to be responsible for their collection. And, and that's because there is this huge cost to society that marine litter uh, affects the livelihoods of, of course, the fishing industries and, and tourism in many of these coastal communities. And so the European Commission has acknowledged that there's this greater societal cost and that there needs to be a shared effort to cover that cost from both the producers and the municipalities. I mean, you can't even get plastic bags kind of banned for good in, in Manhattan. I mean, that's hugely controversial. The supermarkets look at it as... Uh, uh, an ultimate convenience. Everybody pushes back on it. I mean, I don't, I don't know if San Francisco or Washington, D.C. has done it. Some parts of Anacostia have seen it clog up rivers. You go to Kenya and you see plastic black blossoms of, of various different colors. If you can't get unanimity behind something that's so omnipresent and, and frustrating from a kind of an aesthetics and a public health and immediate ecology perspective, how are you going to get any sort of consensus with making these manufacturers responsible for the polymers that they're putting out there? Well, I think we're seeing the, the Brussels effect, in effect that, that these are global brands. They're seeing the impact of European Commission rules and decisions and European countries that are instituting bans, like France is looking at bans on textile waste and bans on food waste. And companies are scrambling to address this. And so in the U.S., it's not that we're anticipating that those regulations would happen here in the same way, but these global companies need to have consistent supply chains and approaches to their products. 
And so that's where we're seeing them start to implement really ambitious sustainability goals that they are required to implement in Europe. And in the U.S., they're following suit. It's interesting. You think about you can either try to control the corporations um, and, and how they conduct their business, or you can then go to their consumers and and try to control their behavior. I think, I mean, just being a consumer, I think it's more effective if I'm told that if I throw away, you know, X amount over my uh, quota, then I'll have to pay something because that's going to change my behavior. And I think collectively, then companies, which are very smart at solving the needs of the consumer, are, are then going to change their practice. But if you go the other way, uh, kind of top down, um, one, I don't think the, the consumers you know, are always aware of what's going on as far as, um, you know, company practices. But um, I, think, I think you just get more resi- uh, resistance that way. Um, I'm I'm curious, Kate, how much e-waste keeps you up at night. When I um, spent time in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, you go to Nigeria and Ghana and you'd be shocked at how um, the waterways there are clogged with phones that are just getting turned over, electronics that are just increasingly becoming kind of, you know, two-year disposable things that you never would have imagined that uh, little kids are prying them apart for bits of, of copper and palladium and gold and whatnot. And all of these various polymers and dioxins are getting burned. There seems to be no standard protocol for the world to deal with uh, just this dizzying array of, of electronics that everybody has in their palms these days. Yeah, I think within electronics, I, that definitely does keep me up at night because of the the program of planned obsolescence around these gadgets that are still useful when they expire in the sense that people are encouraged to, to buy the next round, even though what they already have still works. Um, I think extended producer responsibility for electronics has, has been shown to be successful in, in the U.S. And, and overseas. So that's one avenue. I think we really need to see much more innovation in the ability to affordably extract the value from these electronics and a much more robust collection system here in the U.S. so that people aren't just leaving these to be disposed of in irresponsible ways. Who is the authority above this? I mean, it's not like the UN is particularly effectual <laughs> in the year 2019 in terms of its its you know foremost mandates, what what its day job. But when you have you know when you're in South Florida and you can identify waste washing up from uh, the coast of Africa and 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 you saw like the, in an Economist magazine investigation a couple of months ago that says I think it's five or six rivers in Asia that contribute the preponderance of of plastic in the oceans, which I believe over the next several decades, if left unchecked, can actually weigh more than the fish, all the fish in the oceans. That's right. It's it's a it's a global problem with a, a local source. And I think that governance is a huge issue and also incentives for capital investment. And that will come from the investment community and from the brands and from government. But those actors are not going to be motivated sufficiently without the shareholder activism, without community activism, to really draw a line and at what's acceptable and not. And you know, when you think about the the three R's: reduce, reuse, recycle, that's not sufficient anymore. We have to think about refuse as being one of those R's, and also looking at new economic models for resell, repair, and and that's because it's not just the regulation that's going to change this, and we certainly will never have the regulation in the U.S. to match what other countries have put into place to address these things. Um, but it's really also this missed opportunity for revenue when we're throwing all of this in the trash as opposed to letting innovative new approaches capture the profits that are possible. 
James, how many companies are coming to you and, and doing this out of, I don't know, noblesse oblige or the times have changed and we saw the, the straw tipping point moment versus actual pressure from stakeholders and shareholders and customers saying, it's no longer acceptable for you to ship me my organic quinoa bowls in styrofoam? Yeah, so we, we usually see one out of three reasons. It's either, hey, this is our brand. Um, it's extremely important to us, and sustainability is a big part of maintaining that that image, that brand. Um, or it's, hey, we weren't. This wasn't really on our radar, but we got a very high up, top down corporate responsibility mandate. Um, our CEO got on TV and promised something, and <laughs> we got to figure this out. Um, or it's, hey, we are losing customers. Um, because this really matters to our consumer base, and they don't like receiving our product, especially because we sell to a lot of sub- uh, subscription-based companies. We don't, they don't like receiving their product every week in bad packaging because there's a huge guilt factor. And so what are you allowed to tell some of the companies that have already signed deals with you and um, yeah, press um, release terms? I think HelloFresh is a public one, um, Diplomat, uh, Pharmacies, uh, Green Chef, um, most of the, of the big meal kit companies. Um, and then what we're doing right now is we're positioning the product for the life science industry. What is this pop mailer that Amazon sends around now that's kind of – it's a st- it's a very – it doesn't weigh anything. It has like the plastic pop things in it with blue lettering on the outside. Blue and white bubble. bubble yeah, it wrap. feels uh, yeah. taboo because if that were to end up in a lake or if that were to end up in a blue bin, that's nothing that the, the recycling company can deal with. Yeah, I mean films are, films are hard to recycle. Um, they get caught up in rotary equipment and stuff like that. I'm not sure why they, why they switched to that. And Kate, I, I, I always wonder when I see these plastic recycling bags, do plastic bags actually get recycled? Well, there are certain avenues for recycling plastic bags. But in, here in New York City, when people put their recyclable metal, paper, and plastic into a plastic bag, then when that goes through our recycling processing facility, it, it gums up the works and, and gets caught. So those are not recyclable in that context. But there are plenty of stores that have take-back policies where you can take back their plastic bag and other plastic bags and, and just put them in a bin at the front of the store. And some of those are sent to regional recycling centers that turn them into new plastic bags. Guys, where is this all headed in the few minutes we have left? So there has been a reckoning. China finally said, enough with the Michigas. We're not taking all your junk. What are you going to do with all that junk, right? So this is forcing at least a conversation. You're seeing I think a trend is finally when the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Atlantic, right, all cover the same story in a month. Um, It's going to cause a hard conversation. Municipalities are talking about this right now. We saw that one example, I think, in Philadelphia. Was it the airport or something where they said, we're still going to keep the recycling bins out there because we want to encourage good behavior. But truth be told, this stuff's going to get incinerated or landfilled. Um, And a lot of people are talking about this now. I mean, I don't know if this is is probably extremely hard to pull off, but I'm picturing – you know, there's a nutrition label on every food item you buy, and it tells you, hey, if you ingest this, here's what's, here's what's going to happen. Here's the calories, here's the sugar, here's the fats. Um, we don't have any equivalent when we purchase things, and, and they have an effect too. They have, here's the energy it took to create this, translated into here's the embodied carbon. Um, this material's good, this one's bad, this one's medium. We have no way to measure our effect and, and our behavioral choices on, on the materials that we purchase and, and the demand that we're creating. So... In some way, we got to get this down to the consumer level of, hey, every time you buy something, you are making a choice to consume various materials, and these have effects. Um, the second part to that is, and again, I don't, I don't really know the answer, but what is the total cost um, of the status quo, and, and how, do you put a, how do you put a number on that and then assign, okay, we're going to work against this number. You know, this, this is, this is, here's what's at stake. Mm. Kate? 
I, I totally agree that, that we need to have the costs be less invisible uh, to consumers and to the companies who are producing these products so that we all understand better the actual cost to our society and our health and our well-being of having this leaky system. And, and I think that that transition to a more circular system also can be correlated with happiness. The amount of consumption that, that we do is not linked with an increase in happiness. And so how do we separate consumption from economic growth. That's the real goal. And I think that it, it takes a, a public-private approach. It takes consumer activism and, and collective action in order for us to accomplish this paradigm sh shift, the systems change. It's very, very difficult, and we need to do it collaboratively. But Kate, can you have it all without any true incremental discomfort? I mean, I know the Swedes right now, it's very popular for them to repair things. They have these clubs that sew buttons back on and restore old coats. Um, I think we're very culturally aware, uh, you know, away from that. It's very much a single-use uh, plastic economy still. It's one where everybody wants to re-up their smartphone every two years. Are there going to have to be hard decisions on the kind of the, the quality of living and standard of living front? I think right now we, we all want things to be easy, simple, convenient, and cheap. And we're going to have to give up some of that in order to transition to being healthy, happy, and collaborative. James, tell us the plans for your company. It's very exciting. People are talking about it. Are you allowed to tell us the, the valuation, how much it's raised, where it's headed? Um, I can tell New you New markets? We, we just raised $22 million. Um, the, the exciting markets that we're getting into... You know, right now we are replacing the, the, the styrofoam coolers that people see at the doorsteps. Um, and those are the, the, sort of the, the beachhead market because everyone, those are causing a big problem right now. Um, what we're getting into right now is behind the scenes. Um, I, sometimes I think about packaging like it's like electricity. It's being produced every day. It's all around us. No one really notices it. Um, and so we're getting into the behind the scenes action of all these huge logistical and supply chain operations that are going on. And we're helping them... Um, you know, improve their packaging to make it more responsible and more sustainable. Mm. And what are some of the other headlines? I mean, what are some of the more exciting things? I know there's a lot of depressing things going on, starting with that very plastic bag I saw there for the fourth mm -hmm. winter and spring in a row. What are some true things where you realize you're seeing out there that are, are, are being short shrifted that show that progress is there? And maybe we've passed the point of cyclicality where this is kind of, you know, recycle and regress, recycle and regress. No, actually something has changed. Yeah. Well, what I like is that when a customer comes to us, it's, it's really exciting when they say, hey, this matters to our consumer base. You know, we, we've, we've thought about this for five years, but in the past two years, we've gotten a lot more um, complaints and a lot more feedback that, you know, the pressure's on us to, to do something differently. And we're here to talk to you about developing a solution. Um, that's really exciting because it means at, at the, the grassroots level, there's some discomfort with the status quo. Um, the, I mean, the other thing is uh, these kind of top-down corporate responsibility programs. Um, they used to just be kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're going to throw something out into the future, but, you know, we may not hit it. And now it's we get calls from very, very large companies saying, hey, we have a deadline. And, you know, this is this is important to our company. We need to implement a new solution. And you're like, retainer. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, you are listening to James McGough, co-founder and CEO of Temper Pack. Here in studio with me is a fast-growing, sustainable packaging company that just closed its second round of venture funding. Congrats and good luck, sir. Thank you. And joining us from NPR Manhattan was Kate Daly, executive director of the Center for the Circular Economy at Closed Loop Partners. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Neil Rauch at NPR NYC. 
This show runs on 88.9 WCVE News, always on NPR.org and the trusty NPR One app, which I cannot live without. Enjoy us always on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. We are a natural, renewable resource that breaks down vital concepts for you with no methane emissions. Reduce, refuse, recycle, repeat. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 